take out your Bibles, if you brought one. Acts chapter 26. If you did not bring a Bible today, or perhaps you don't own a Bible, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. Acts 26. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you afterwards. That's our gift to you. I need a copy of God's Word. I have some homework for you later. You're going to need this. So. <laughs> Acts 26. We continue today. We got about halfway through the chapter last week. Acts 26, Paul is standing before Festus, before King Agrippa, and before a, a large contingent of very influential, powerful people from the city of Caesarea. He's, on, he's not on trial at this particular moment, but he's still a prisoner of Rome because of charges that have been brought against him by the Jewish religious leaders. According to the world's eyes, he's a prisoner of Rome. Paul, in Paul's eyes, he's a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. We looked at this last time. He said, I consider myself fortunate to be in these chains standing before you, King Agrippa, because this is where God would have me. This is where Jesus has placed me. And we saw last time as Paul gives his testimony before this large audience, the testimony where he stated who he was before his encounter with Jesus. And we talked about the, the fact that if God can use a man like Paul with the heart that Paul had at that point, he can use anyone. But we see then the radical change of life that came about in Paul after his encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he, he spoke of that and his new life now in Christ. But then he also said, this is the mission that I've been given by Jesus personally, specifically. He said that Jesus sent me to the Jews, to the Gentiles, all over, to everyone, to open their eyes so that... They can turn from darkness to light. They can turn from the dominion, the power of Satan to God, and they can receive forgiveness of sins. They can receive the inheritance that all of us as born-again believers have waiting for us in heaven. Paul said, that's been the mission that I've been given. And we stopped at that point last week for a reason, because as we're going to step into this now, Paul now goes into the testimony of how that happens, how eyes are opened, how people turn. And so we begin now looking at verse 19, Paul again speaking to Agrippa, Festus, and all the people. He said, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, then throughout all of the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was gonna take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim life both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, I was, I was obedient. It's interesting how he phrases it. I did not prove disobedient. That's another way of saying I was obedient. I did what Jesus called me to do. Regardless of the outcome, 
regardless of the response, and we've seen as we've studied through Acts, the various responses of the people as Paul was obedient to this message. Starting in Damascus, he was run out of Damascus, then to Jerusalem, run out of Jerusalem for fear of his life, threats against his life. Throughout Judea, again, everywhere he went. And we start seeing, though, people coming to faith, churches being planted. Then as he goes throughout the, the, the Gentile areas, as we studied his missionary journeys. But in every place, also, the enemy attacking. Great fruit, but also great persecution in every place. And then he says here, right up to this moment, to this very moment, as I'm standing before you now. We talked of last week that Paul relied on grace completely for everything. He understood that he was saved by grace. But it's that same grace that saved him is the same grace that sustains him as he continues to follow Jesus obediently. He will write, 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I love that verse because, again, we mentioned this last week. Paul's so, so taken up with this idea of God's grace towards him. Here's one sentence. He uses grace three times. It's all about grace. Unmerited, unearned favor. The, the favor of God poured out on me in spite of who I am, who I was. Continuing in this grace. And I mentioned Last time he said that his mission to open the eyes so that turning from darkness to light, turning from Satan to God, so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. He now goes in, in verse 19, or verse 20, I'm sorry, explaining how that works. He uses first, he says the word repent. The word repent and repentance are used 56 times in the New Testament. And the literal Greek word means to change your mind. Now we're going to get into the biblical definition of repentance here in a moment, but even if we take it in its simplest form, to change your mind about something means first you need to come to the point of recognizing that your mind needs to be changed. That there's something that you're thinking in a direction that you're going that all of a sudden you realize if I keep going this direction, I'm going to continue to go the wrong way. I need to change my mind. And that's the idea even behind biblical repentance is to come to that point, that understanding that I'm going the wrong way and I need to turn. But the biblical repentance, as we'll see, goes beyond just an intellectual thing. It goes to our very hearts. It goes to our desires. It goes as deep as to our will, our very makeup. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. It's not just an intellectual thing. The sorrow, according to the will of God, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Here he draws a very stark contrast between the sorrow that leads to salvation and the sorrow of the world. The sorrow that leads to salvation is one that leads to a brokenness over our condition. The sorrow of the world is one that's bummed over the consequences. Very different. Uh, there's a difference between being broken over what we did and being truly repentant and being sorry we got caught. <laughs> and 
The word that's used oftentimes when we deal with repentance is confession. To confess. To confess means to agree with. Literally, that word means to agree to say the same thing as. So when we're dealing with biblical repentance, we need to agree that the, the, the change that needs to take place is we are no longer going in the direction that I determine all of these things, but I now say the same thing as God. Biblical repentance deals directly, specifically with sin. And when we agree with God, first of all, we need to agree with God as to what sin is. In our flesh, in, our, in, in the world that we live in, even if we come to the point where we will agree that something is wrong, our definition of what sin is, is it's a mistake. It's a boo-boo. I did a bad thing. But biblical repentance happens when we agree with God as to what sin is. It is an egregious affront. It is treasonous against a holy, righteous, perfect God. We can't put it strong enough. I was asked a question before the service by, by someone who's having a conversation with a, with a non-believer. And they said, I could never, I could never come in and worship a God who requires blood sacrifice. That's just, so, that's just so wrong. But see, the problem is they don't understand how egregious sin is if they have that attitude. That if just saying, I'm sorry, covers it, it doesn't, it can't. The sacrifices that God put in place are bloody and brutal for a reason so that we understand how serious sin is. And to point to the sacrifice that was going to be made on our behalf by Jesus himself, who was brutally tortured and killed on our behalf so that our sin could be washed away. Repentance deals with confession, confessing what sin is. See, the problem with us before we come to that point is our entire life is trying to take God from where he is and bring him down and take us from where we are and build ourselves up. But when we agree with God as to who he is and who we are, we stop defending ourselves and we truly get to that broken place. And then... Also, not just what sin is, but what is sin? God alone defines what sin is. He clearly tells us what is right and wrong in his word. It's not up to the Supreme Court. It's not up to popular opinion as to what sin is. God defines it. God defines it. And going even beyond his written word, those things that he tells us in our own lives, if we're disobedient to those things that he reveals to us, that is sin. Sin deals directly with, or uh, repentance deals directly with sin, but it also deals completely with the turning. It's not a, it's not a glance over the shoulder. And by the way, it's not a 360 either. <laughs> Oftentimes, that's, that's the struggle we can get in, is the turning we do is this. <laughs> and then we get real dizzy. <laughs> Repentance means a 180. 
Stop going this direction and start going that direction. Stop going the direction in darkness, turning to the light and going to the light, turning from the dominion of Satan, turning to the dominion and power of God. Forsaking, Isaiah says, Isaiah 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If the reason that you've never repented is you think God is waiting if you turn around with a sledgehammer in his hand, he is not. He's waiting with his arms wide open. He will abundantly pardon And again, notice turning from repenting and turning to God. Same thing Isaiah said, return to the Lord, turn to God. Because unfortunately, we can turn around and if we don't turn completely to God, the enemy's gonna make sure there's another road to take. Jesus said, the road is broad and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. But the road is narrow and the gate is small that leads to life. Many will say, man, you Christians are so narrow-minded. Amen. (laughs) Jesus said it's narrow. But I'm not going to argue with that. I'm going to praise him every step I take on that way because he made a way. He didn't have to. (laughs) That was because of, again, his grace. None of us deserved a way. But he gave it to us. His unbelievable provision that he made for us. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Giving of himself, suffering and dying in our place. Paul makes this defense before Agrippa. This, makes, this doesn't resonate at all with Festus, but it hits right home with Agrippa. We talked of this last time. He's an expert in Jewish custom. He's an expert in the Jewish religion, and he hits right at it. He said, Festus, you know this. The prophets said it. Moses said it. It all pointed to Jesus. Back in Numbers chapter 21, there's a, God sent a serpent to go through the, the children of Israel as they're out in the wilderness and the serpent bit a bunch of people and those were, that were bitten by the serpent were dying. And God told Moses, you make a bronze serpent, you put it up on a staff and you lift it up and whoever looks at the serpent will be healed immediately. Believe it or not, many refused to look. And Jesus in John chapter three said, as the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will receive eternal life. It's simply a matter again of repenting, turning to Jesus, the one and only way that God provided for us. It was prophesied, it was prophesied, Isaiah 53, spoken of in the prophets. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned away to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah wrote this prophesying of this hundreds of years before Jesus fulfilled it, that he would be pierced for us, that he would be scourged, that before his, his, the people bringing the accusations, he would be silent. And Paul is Paul is appealing to Agrippa. The prophets talked about this. Moses prophesied that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again. He touches on the fact that it's, that it's available to all, Jews and Gentiles. He said that he, he, he declares that this gift is available to everyone. By the way, that's what got him in trouble with the Jews. The Jews says, no, 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 this is just for us. Paul said, no. God's heart is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. But he doesn't stop there, and I want to spend some time on this this morning because this is extremely important. Notice he said, repent and turn to God, and it continues immediately after that, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. If we repent and turn to God, there will be evidence of that. There will be proof that it's taken care of. Notice he says, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. He's not just saying you're going to go out and start doing humanitarian work. No, the deeds that are to be done should be appropriate with repentance that show that we were going this way, we recognized it was wrong, we confessed our sin, we turned and we turned to God and we went to him. Some other translations, I like the way it's written. The Good News translation says, to do things that would show they had repented. The New Living Translation, if you have that, that Bible, it says, to prove they have changed by the good things they do. One Greek expert put it this way, doing works that weigh as much as the repentance they confess. To, to have evidence that the turning has take place. To show that their life is changed. If you, if you get in your car this afternoon and you start driving out I-10 west to go to California, and you get about 100 miles down the road and you realized that you forgot something at home. You left the window open or, so, or whatever. And you turn around to come back home. What's the proof that you did it? You're heading east. <laughs> it's interesting, this word that is used here, deeds, appropriate to repentance, deeds, is the Greek word ergon, and it's used a lot. But Paul uses it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, ergon, lest anyone should boast. Paul's message again, we are saved by grace through faith. It is not because of things that we do, because if it were, we could brag about it, and it wouldn't be grace. But James says this, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
Now, do Paul and James disagree? Is there a contradiction here? Is Paul a Calvinist and James an Arminianist? No. It works together perfectly. It underscores, again, what we're saying right here. I've, I've heard it put this way, that, that speaking of a tree, faith is the root, works are the fruit. The work proves that, it, that it's the tree that it claims to be. I have several different kinds of trees in my backyard. You know how I can tell which one's the orange tree? Because there's oranges on it. And you know what the amazing thing about it is? I've never once walked out of my backyard and seen the orange tree going, there's one. It just happens. But if there weren't oranges on the tree, or walk up to my palm tree and expect oranges, it's not, they're not going to be there. You see, it's not faith or works that save you. It's not faith and works that save you. It's a faith that works that saves you. John Calvin put it this way, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. I think the key to understanding what James is talking about, he says, if someone says, if someone makes a statement and we just take it based on their statement, that, that, doesn't, make, that doesn't make a lot of sense. There's, there's, no, there's no authentication behind their proclamation. You know, I, I, I consider myself at times one of the luckiest guys I know. You're not going to believe what happened yesterday. I'm walking through the parking lot, and I meet this guy, and, and he said uh, he's a little hard on his luck, and he needs some money, he needs it really quick. And he said, I got this Babe Ruth signed baseball that I'll sell you for 500 bucks. <laughs> now, I'm no fool. I Googled it right away, and I found out that Babe Ruth signed baseballs go for thousands of dollars. So I just made a killing. There it is. <laughs> See, it says Babe Ruth right on it. He can testify. Uh, now, you, you all would think I was a fool if this was real. I didn't really do that. If I just took his word for it, if I just took his word that this is Babe Ruth's signature on this baseball and I didn't get any authentication behind that, that would be foolish. But so many people put their, their, their faith in that. They said, I just made a statement one time and so I'm, I'm good to go. But there's no fruit. There's no, there's no deeds appropriate to repentance. There's nothing in their life that would show that they've made this. That profession without Christ honoring obedient life to follow, I'm going to tell you right now is as worthless as that baseball. What we do and how we act reveals what we are. If we are truly born again, our new life will reflect that. Simply making a profession without any evidence is such a danger. Last summer, ABC News did a poll. 83% of Americans said they're Christians. 
I'm telling you right now, if 83% of Americans are truly born again Christians, we don't have half the problems we do. We don't have to do all, the, all we're doing to raise all the money for Crisis Pregnancy Center if, half, if 83% of Americans are truly born again. Abortion would have been done away with a long time ago. And again, it is not just humanitarian work we're talking about here. Again, we are, when, we, when we confess, when we repent, we start following what does God say? We live our lives following what he says. I read the first couple of verses, Ephesians 2. The full, the full text goes this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When we make this turn and we get on the path with Jesus and we're following him, we see that he has lined this out for us. Again, the fruit, we don't struggle to produce the fruit. We simply walk in the way that he's laid out before us. Paul writes in Philippians chapter two. So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is speaking to born again Christians when he says that. And I want to challenge you, every one of you in here who make the profession and I stand with you when I, when I challenge you, I challenge myself too. When is the last time you approached God in fear and trembling? Or was it just... Hey, Jesus, just checking in today. To go before him as, as a, a Christian, as a born-again believer, again, not quivering, but in respect of who he is. Almighty God. Yes, he is our Abba Father, absolutely. But he's Almighty God. Interesting, when we look at these verses, or this, this verse in particular, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In the Greek, those verbs are in the present active. Literally, it means that be repenting, be turning to God, be performing deeds. It's not a one and done thing. The evidence that you one, at one time in your life repented is that you continue to repent. As God reveals things to you, the Holy Spirit convicts us of things. We continually repent, turning from those things. It describes a life. It describes a lifestyle. Be repenting. Be turning to God. Be performing deeds. Turn with me to 1 John. Keep your finger here, we'll be back. But first John, and here I told you, you got homework. I'm gonna challenge you. We're gonna fly through the entire book of first John here in about a couple of minutes. <laughs> I'm gonna hit a few verses in some chapters, but I wanna challenge you. 
where regardless of where you are in your walk, if you are a born again believer, or perhaps you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to challenge all of us to read the book of 1 John every day this week. Five chapters, they're short chapters. Plan on carving out about a half hour, 45 minutes, because God's going to speak to you as you're doing this. But trust me, it's going to be worth it. But let's just look at some of this together real quickly, because I think it underscores again everything that we're, we're talking about here. 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Notice, if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I know that's not an easy message to hear. But that's what the word of God says. If we say that we're walking with Jesus, but we're walking in darkness, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. Verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But notice verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not ours alone, but for those for the whole world. Verse three, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandment. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I believe that's how he said it. I don't believe it was with a heavy hand. I think he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's going to happen. If you're an orange tree, you're going to have oranges. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, note, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him and loves God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. Our lives should be a reflection of Jesus. Jump down, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Here's the problem. So many people said, yeah, I made a profession one day. I raised my hand. I got my get out of hell free card, but I love the world. I love this. I love this life that I can do whatever I want to do and be okay because I got my get out of hell free card. So now I even feel like I could do it even more. The Bible says, if that's your heart, you're deceiving yourself. You can't, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. He didn't say it's going to be really hard. He said, it's impossible. You'll either love one and hate the other. You'll serve one and despise the other. James said that if we have friendship with the world, we are enemies with God. We need, to, we need to understand that. To, to say, I'm going I'm to straddle the fence and walk both sides of the fence. We can't do that. Skip ahead, chapter 3. 
Verse four, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and the sin is lawlessness. Here in these next verses we're going to look at, we're going to see this word practices over and over. It speaks of a lifestyle. Again, as Christians, it doesn't mean when we're born again that we will never sin again, but it means that we will, we will not have a lifestyle of sin. He goes on, practices sin, practices lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him sins and no one who has sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God, notice, practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. What defines your life? What is your lifestyle? What, 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 what is the definition of that? What are, are you walking in light or are you walking in darkness? As Christians, we need to keep a very short account with God. When we step out of line, when we sin, we need to respond to that conviction that the Holy Spirit lays on our hearts and repent. That's, the, that's one of the beautiful gifts of having the Holy Spirit residing in us is that conviction. Conviction is a beautiful thing. It's not condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But conviction, it's a beautiful thing. Chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, is that commandments are not burdensome. They're not, they're not meant to weigh us down. They're meant to free us up. As we follow in him, we have freedom that we've never had before. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Verse 13, and this is, this is very important. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John did not write all of this so that everyone in the room doubts whether they're saved or not but we are all called to examine our walk. Paul tells us that. Test ourselves, see if we're in the faith, examine the walk that we have. But the beautiful thing, and I, I, I challenge you in this because after a week of reading 1 John, you're not gonna feel condemned, you're gonna feel liberated. Because as we hold up our lives to this and we confess and we repent, any of those areas God lays on our hearts, we can know that we have eternal life and we can walk in the freedom of that eternal life. So there's your homework assignment. Now, back to Acts 26, because I'm running short on time here, and we've got to finish the chapter. We are going to close coming back to this, though. Verse 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not happened in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. 
And Paul said, I wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might come to be as such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this, might man, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, Paul lays it all out. His entire testimony lays out the gospel, lays it, lays it all right there. And we see the response. We've looked at the different responses to the gospel message throughout Acts. First, Festus. Man, you're crazy. And he wasn't, he wasn't arguing with Paul's changed life. He can't do that. I encourage you all the time, share your testimony because people can't argue with what God has done in your life. They might argue what, what the cause was, but they can't argue with the fact that you were like this and now you're this. Again, evidence of repentance. But the fact that Paul gives credit to the fact that Jesus suffered and died and rose again, that, that's the problem. But notice, he says, you're crazy. Notice Paul's response. He said, no, 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 it's the sober truth. Interesting when we look at those two words, the sober truth. First of all, sober, that literally means the rational truth. What we believe is actually very rational. We don't have to apologize for what we believe. Yes, it's faith. Absolutely, it's faith. But it's a reasonable faith. What is unreasonable, what is irrational, is what the world tries to do and to propagate in order to, to go away from the fact that there must be a creator. And if there's a creator, we must be accountable to that creator. So they'll do everything to avoid that. And that's irrational. Now, I was going to just highlight it in some notes, but every time I tried, I fell way far short. So I want you to be patient with me because I want to read an excerpt from a book. And last night when I told the title of the book, we got a rush at the bookstore and I didn't tell them. So <laughs> they're going to order some. You might want to let them know if you want to get it so they can order you a copy. But it's called The Signature of God by Grant Jeffrey. Fantastic book about all of the proofs that are in the Bible that we can use to defend our faith, the prophecies that have been fulfilled, all of these types of things. But in this one particular chapter, it's speaking about creation versus evolution. And speaking on... The, the evolution side. He says, the mathematical odds against life evolving by chance are absolutely staggering. It is impossible to believe that the awesome complexity involved in the simplest living cell could have occurred as a result of chance, even if the process occurred gradually over billions of years. More than 20 different amino acids are required to produce the proteins that exist in the smallest living cell. In experiments where scientists have tried to create these 20 amino acids in a laboratory, they have failed every time. And that's with having all of the stuff ahead of time. Proteins that make up living cells are composed of long, thin lines of amino acids, only one millionth the thickness of a human hair. The smallest living creature contains more than 500 amino acids. All amino acids have side groups of atoms. Now, this is going to get a little technical, but it's important. Scientists found that 50% of the side groups of atoms that are attached to non-living amino acids are on the left side and another 50% on the right side every time. 
When biologists examined proteins with living cells, they discovered that all proteins are left-handed. In other words, all living cells contain amino acids with their side groups of atoms on the left side only. Amino acids produced in the laboratory are exactly like those found in non-living matter with 50% on the left, 50% on the right. Yet living cells can exist only when the atoms are solely left-handed. To determine the likelihood of life occurring by chance, scientists calculate, the same scientists calculated the probability that amino acids would, be, would form chains of atoms solely on the left sides. The odds against this happening are one chance in 10 to the 123rd power. That is 10 with 123 zeros behind it. One chance in that many that the amino acids to develop a protein could happen that way, randomly. The proteins in living creatures are composed of long chains of different amino acids that must be linked together in precise sequence to allow the protein to function. And remind, we're talking about the proteins that make up the cells of the smallest living creatures. No, we're not talking about our eyeballs yet. Evolutionary scientists believe these complex amino acids came together by chance in the exact sequence necessary to enable life. But mathematicians have calculated that the odds against these 500 amino acids lining up in the correct order to produce one single living cell is equal to one chance in 10 to the 200th power. 200 zeros. Just to put that in perspective, one trillion is 10 with 12 zeros. He goes on to describe, to try to put that number into, because into, 10 with 200 zeros behind it. If, if that was representative, a grain of sand represented every one of those possibilities, the sand would fill our galaxy. So let's paint one of those grains of sand blue, and then you randomly go out in our full solar system full of sand and find that one blue piece of sand. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> What's irrational? What's unreasonable? Yet we're the ones who are called crazy. Scientist after scientist after scientist who were once atheists have come to at least understand and embrace the fact that it couldn't have happened by chance. There must be a creator. A hundred years ago, people laughed and said, your Bible says Israel's going to be a nation again. But the chances of that ever happening. Pretty good, actually. <laughs> going to be there in a couple of weeks. It's rational. Paul says it's sober. It's rational. Makes perfect sense. And it's truth, by the way. Truth. Absolute truth. Just because you don't like it doesn't change it. It's still truth. I don't like the fact I can't fly, but I can't. It's the truth. Agrippa's response. There's some, there's some debate as to the exact translation of this because of the Greek that, that's here. But bottom line, Agrippa says, you've almost convinced me. But here's, here's the deal, guys. Almost doesn't count. Almost convinced me. Doesn't work. The Atlanta Falcons almost won the Super Bowl last week. <laughs> 
none of us want to jump out of an airplane and have our parachute almost open. What stopped him? What was the reason that he didn't go all the way with it? You almost, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. It's, the truth is right here before me. You almost convinced me what held him back. It doesn't tell us, but he's surrounded by others. We already heard Festus's response. Was he held back because Festus said, you're crazy? And he goes, I don't want him to think I'm crazy. All of the people that are there in this auditorium, I don't, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? I don't hear anybody else saying they believe. So if, if I say I believe, what, what is that? It means I'm going to have to change my life. I'm going to have to repent. I can't keep going this way. And, and I love this way. I, I, I'm going to have to change that. I see Paul standing there and change. I don't want to be like that. Are all of those the reason? What's the reason if you're here today and you've almost given your life to Jesus, you've almost surrendered your life, what's your reason? Because you're worried about what other people are going to say? Because you're worried about what God might ask you to do next? Let me tell you, if you make that decision today, you will never regret it. We looked at the the verse that said before, the sorrow that, that leads to repentance, it's without regret. You will never regret it. Jesus said, what is it, what is it profit to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Because all of the things that we hold on to in this life are temporary. We're here for just a short time. I'm sure that there's more than one of us that can attest that, man, the time goes by quick. And then it's over. And then there's eternity. And the truth is you will spend eternity in one of two places. And it's the truth, whether you like it or not, it's the truth. You'll either spend eternity in heaven, glorious beyond description, or you'll spend eternity in hell, suffering beyond description. The choice is yours. We're going to have communion here in a moment, but I I want everyone in the room to do this. We're going to stand up in a second and we're going to start out by praying a verse in the Bible together because it's asking God to search us and to reveal to us because the problem with, with examining ourselves, we're called to do that. I'm not saying don't, but the problem with examining ourselves is we can convince ourselves we're okay. I'm going to ask God to examine us, him examine us and reveal to us if there's anything anything that needs to be dealt with today. And I want to challenge every one of us in here today to pray that prayer. If you're a non-believer here, I want to challenge you to pray that prayer and respond as God leads you. Because the truth of the matter is, unless you are born again, you can't, you can't have eternal life. And that born again process is a supernatural process, but you have to allow it to happen in your life. I want you to give God the opportunity to give you that new life today. I also want to challenge anyone in here that has made a profession of faith, but you're not walking it. Perhaps you're one that has played this Christian card forever, but you're truly not born again. I want you to allow God to deal with that today. And don't worry about what others might say. 
What do they find out if that now is the day that I've been born again? I'll tell you what, if they're truly born again, they're going to rejoice that today is the day that you finally got the deal done. But for the rest of us here that are born again believers, I want to pray the same thing and allow God to speak to us about areas in our life that still might not be pleasing to him. The rest of the world might say, it might even say other Christians look and say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But God is saying, but for you, I want this to be different. I believe, and I I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here too soon because I'm praying about this, but I believe God wants to do something huge here. But it's going to require all of us to be at that point that says, God, I want to be exactly where you want me. So would you please stand? Everyone, I want to start off our prayer with this together as we close. If we could put that verse up at Psalm 139. Pray with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each individual heart right now. That we'd be willing to do business with you right now. For those of you that the Holy Spirit is opening up an opportunity for you to be born again today, do not harden your heart. Don't push away this opportunity. Call upon the Lord while he is near and he will abundantly part. Just go before him in your heart. You say, God, I thank you for revealing this to me. And right now I repent. I turn from the way that I'm going. I turn from darkness and I turn to the light. I turn from the direction I'm going and Jesus, I turn to you. You didn't have to make a way for me, but I believe that you did, that you are the way, that you suffered and died in my place, and that you rose again. And I give you my life now. I ask that you come into my life, that you forgive me of my sin, that you give me this new life. Lord, for all of us today, we want our lives to radiate that truth that we truly would continually be performing deeds that are appropriate, that weigh as much as the repentance we profess. Lord, we ask that you continue this work in us now as we worship you. Lord, reveal those things to us personally right now that that you want to deal with in our lives because, Lord, we want to be We want to be available to be used by you in every way that you desire. So so do that work in us now. Do that work as we worship you and proclaim our faith together in Jesus' name.